uh, by popular demand, the incredible Dr. Deb Stein is going to talk uh, about continuous renal replacement therapy, which is a lecture that I have heard multiple times and enjoy every time, and I'm sure that it'll be the same for you all as well. So thank you, Deb, for coming here and enlightening me. Good morning, guys, or afternoon, whatever it is. Um, first of all, I so some of you have heard most of this. So, um, like I was talking, I apologize. I when I got the invitation to speak, I, I didn't, I didn't, we, I didn't coordinate. Um, so, I apologize. It'll be a little redundant for some of you, but again, for those of you who don't do this every day, I think a little bit of redundancy, as Mike said, is probably a good thing. Um, that being said, I'm also happy to discuss some more kind of advanced concepts rather than just the basics. But are people okay? Who is, who is? I know my the surgical fellows have all heard this. Who has not heard a talk on CRT? Okay, so a significant percentage of the room. Okay, so I'll do some bit. All right. Well, the rest of you will just have to suffer. Okay. Um, one of the things about doing this, and I apologize to Paul Thurman, who normally does my song and dance with me. Uh, he's our clinical nurse specialist, who is um, the director of the CRT program here, who is like the guru of all things CRT. Normally, Paul comes with me, and we show you guys the pump um, so that you get some idea of what we're talking about when we talk about the pump. Um, unfortunately, he's upstairs doing liver dialysis on the patient right now, and since he's the only one who's actually credentialed in the building to do it, he can't leave the bedside. So he apologizes for not making it, and I apologize. You don't actually want me showing you the pump because I'd be like, that's the green thing. And that's what I would basically tell you about it. Um, I do think it's helpful, though, if you get an opportunity, uh, particularly your nurses in your units are going to be very experienced with the pump. Take 10 minutes one day and talk to them about it, like what goes where, why is, why, why is this? Because I do think it's helpful when we talk about a lot of these concepts to know how this therapy is actually applied. I think that's actually very helpful. So that being said, we will start with some very basics. Um, about renal failure. So renal failure, there are grossly two different ways, well, there's three, right? One about renal failure, you can do nothing, right? No specific renal failure therapy, targeted therapies, right? We all we do that all the time, right? Give a little hydration. Okay, fine. Um, or you can do renal replacement therapy. Renal replacement therapy actually comes, so much weight for it, I don't know where to start. <laughs> uh, renal replacement therapy actually comes in two flavors. And these are, by the way, my own markers. <laughs> um, intermittent hemodialysis or continuous renal replacement therapy. Intermittent hemodialysis, right? You have your IHD, your classic nephrology uh, dialysis nurse comes to the bedside, hooks your patient up to that machine that makes a horrible whirring noise. Did they ever? And this really badly brain patient in the next room one day. She's like, "Make that noise stop!" And I'm like, "What is she talking about?" And walking in was like this. <laughs> like this, like constantly, this poor woman, she's like a horrible concussion, like horrible. She's miserable. IHD or SLED, which is slow, low efficiency dialysis. Intermittent hemodialysis, right, is going to be classically done three days a week for your routine, generic chronic renal failure patient, typically a two to three hour session three times a week. Um, SLED is a similar type of thing, but it is done um, typically daily, and it's usually for 12 hours a day, so low efficiency dialysis. And then we have our CRRT, our, renal, our continuous renal replacement therapy, is what we're going to talk about today. But a lot of the principles about CRRT directly <coughs> apply to intermittent hemodialysis, and I'll talk about that also. The CRRT versions, <coughs> I won't even go into the AV blank. Continuous arterial venous hemofiltration, hemodialysis, or hemodialysis. Um, arterial venous, actually, when I was a resident, makes me feel very, very old. We actually did arterial venous. Um, basically, you had an arterial line, you had a venous line, and you used the patient's systemic pressure to actually push the blood through the filter. Um, I will tell you a quick story. Uh, colleagues of mine who went to China after the earthquake um, about four or five years ago now um, did a ton of arteriovenous, where they just would hook patients up with an arterial line and put a venous line into the filter in between, because they didn't obviously have access to uh, hemofiltration pumps, and they 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 prevented a lot of people from doing long-term renal failure by doing that. You can really clear a tremendous amount of stuff by doing that. But again, it's more for historical interest. Nowadays, we have the pumps. We don't need to use our arterial circulation. You don't need to put a big arterial catheter in. So we talk about CRT, there are basically four modalities that we'll talk about, the venovenous versions. One is scuff, one is continuous veno 
So stuff is slow, continuous, ultrafiltration. There's CVVH, continuous veno-veno-hemofiltration. There is CVVHD, continuous veno-veno-hemodialysis. And then CVVHDF, continuous veno-veno-hemodiafiltration. Um, the vast majority of what you'll see in this institution as well as, as others is a CBBH hemofiltration. Uh, we do some stuff here, and we do uh, nephrology primarily does some CBBHD. Cardiac surgery, I think, uses CBBHD a fair bit, but we'll talk about them. And then CBBHD, to be honest with you, <coughs> it's just these two combined. All right, we'll talk about some of the principles behind each of these. I will, put the, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a surgeon, so you're all like, what the hell is she doing up here talking about nephrology, about, about like dialysis? Like, what the hell does she know about dialysis? I don't. I know nothing about it. Um, I know what I've learned by doing this. And um, for those of you who are medical, um, in the trauma units this and the surgical ICU units, we run our own CRT. So, which is why you get a lot of experience doing it. I would highly encourage you, for those who are in the MICU, CCU, where, you, where the nephrologists run it, is learn as much as you can about it because there's no reason why you shouldn't be doing it or shouldn't be doing it. I promise you, if I can do it, it is not that complicated. That much I promise. Okay. So, we don't need to go through traditional indications, right? Everybody knows traditional indications for patients who are in renal failure, acute renal failure specifically, although. We do, we will use the continuous versions in patients who have chronic renal failure if they wind up in our ICU, right? What is the benefit of CRT? What's the proven benefit of CRT over intermittent hemodialysis? Proven evidence-based benefit. There is none, right? There has never been a randomized prospective trial that has demonstrated benefit with respect to long-term renal recovery or mortality for CRT over intermittent hemodialysis. Right? So that's a really background baseline thing that we all should know. That being said, the vast majority, in fact all of them I believe, of the studies that have been done have precluded, have specifically excluded patients who were not hemodynamically stable when they randomized patients. Right? Because the one big problem with intermittent hemodialysis, as we all know, is hypotension, right? Because of the high blood flow rates you use. So I will freely admit, right? Full disclosure, there is no study that says CRT is better than intermittent hemodialysis. But when we're in the ICU, and if you, any of you happen to be moderate control freaks like I am, right, I want to manage my patient's volume status. I want to make them as negative or as positive as I want. I want to manage their electrolytes. I want their sodium to be exactly what I want their sodium to be. I want their potassium to be exactly what I want their potassium to be. And you can't do that with intermittent hemodialysis. You can absolutely do that with continuous renal replacement therapy. So that being said, again, no evidence-based study that's going to tell you this is better. But I will tell you, and if you want to use this as level five evidence, that in my experience, if you're managing a critically ill patient, this is markedly preferable. Because if you're managing a critically ill patient, you want your patient, you want to start making your patient negative. What happens when you do intermittent hemodialysis on that patient? Nephrology comes in and takes off three liters, right? And then what do you do? You give them back the three liters because they're now hypotensive. Right? So the next day, you're now plus three liters. You're, now, you're, now, you're net even, but now they're three liters positive for the next day, and then they come back again and do the same thing all over again. So again, from a practical point of view, CRT management seems to, seems to make things easier. That being said, there are some studies that look at CRT in specific patient populations. There are a couple of patient populations where CRT in a non-level 1A study way is preferable. Um, Intermittent versions are only dialysis, a concept I'll come back to in a little bit. There are certain substances that are not cleared by dialysis. Uh, the main one that we deal with at the trauma center is rhabdo. Myoglobin is not cleared by dialysis, so you actually need a hemofiltration to clear myoglobin. The other patient population where there is data where this is preferable over this is patients who have increased intracranial pressure or are at risk of cerebral edema. Um, intermittent hemodialysis is known to be associated with surges in intracranial pressure. So if you have a patient who has a bad head injury, even if they're a chronic dialysis patient, those are patients who preferably should be on continuous versions. It's a slower, lower, kind of less, um, less, much less fluctuation in intracranial pressure. The other, obviously, patients who are hemodynamically unstable, as I already said, 
And then the last is there is some data that talks about using continuous renal replacement therapy as clearance of evil humors. What does that mean? There is some data that talks about high-flux high hemofiltration, uh, removal of cytokines and other inflammatory mediators. There is some data that says it may decrease pressure requirements in patients with septic shock. So, again, non-level 1A data, but there is some, some research-based benefit. Okay, so what the hell is it? No, I have a marker. I have no yellow marker, though. You need yellow for the P. Mm. <laughs> uh, I apologize for whoever wrote but it's in their way. So, the easiest one to talk about... I'll go back. Go back. Um, is stuff. All right, slow, continuous, ultrafiltration. Let's get a couple of terms out of the way. Ultrafiltrate is the stuff that is taken out of the patient's body and winds up in the bucket, okay? Effluence is all the stuff in the bucket, which becomes important when we talk about dialysis, okay? So I'll just so uh, uh, ultrafiltrate is the stuff that you remove out of the patient's body that goes into the bucket. So we have a patient here. We take blood out of the patient. <coughs> run our blood through a filter. Oh, yeah, I told you what that means. Take blood out of the patient. Blood back to the patient through the filter. And by the machine regulating the pressure across this filter, we'll make our P black, which is bad. <laughs> Stuff fluid will come out of the patient's blood into the bucket, ultrafiltrate. That's all, that's all scuff is. So all it does is run the blood through the filter and by regulating that pressure, take off volume every hour, okay? So what do I need to tell my machine to do? I need to tell my machine what my blood flow rate's gonna be, and by convention, this is in milliliters per minute. So how quickly do I want my blood to run through my circuit? And then how much do I wanna put in the bucket? QUF, ultrafiltrate flow, which in our terminology with our Gambro pumps is called PFR, or patient fluid removal, which unfortunately by convention, is in milliliters per hour. So, you have your patient, they're a little volume overloaded, um, they're not making a ton of urine, you choose, you don't wanna use Lasix on them for whatever reason, um, so you're gonna say, okay, I'm gonna put my patient on the pump, I'm gonna put a dialysis catheter in them, or perhaps more commonly they already have a dialysis catheter because you're coming off of one of these other, other versions of CRT, and I wanna continue to take a little volume off, set my QB, set my PFR, I'm gonna take off 100 cc's an hour, by the end of the day my patient will be 2.5, 2.4 liters negative over that 24 hour period, right? That's all scuff is. Make sense? Yes, any questions about scuff? Because that literally is all it is. It's the same thing, who's used the CHF solutions? The Aquadex. Aquadex, great. Um, Aquadex is exactly the same thing, it just, uh, you can do it with a much smaller access. So um, you actually technically can run it off of peripheral IVs. Um, they now have outpatient um, CHF solution centers where patients who have chronic CHF go in and get <coughs> the fluid removed every day or whatever. Um, so it's exactly the same thing. It's actually much more expensive than putting the catheter in. Okay, so that's scuff. No questions about scuff? Perfectly clear. Yep. Is that a non-selected filter? I mean, just fluid? Comes just fluid. Yep. We're going to talk about exactly how you start taking stuff off. Yep, just fluid. Okay, good. CVVH is the next one we'll talk about. Little person. My filter. My bucket. So blood will come out of the patient, through the filter, back to the patient. Okay, so now I want to start taking off stuff. I want to start taking off myoglobin, let's say, okay? How do I start taking stuff off? Well, the way that chemofiltration works is you generate a convective force across this filter, which will then take proteins, middle and small molecules, out of the blood, right? You just generate that force. 
cross that filter. As a general rule, that force needs to be about a liter to a liter and a half an hour in order to start getting enough convective force across that filter to start pulling stuff out of the blood, the myoglobin, we'll say is our example. So what would happen if I take my patient and I say, I want my QUF to be a liter and a half. I want a liter and a half an hour in the bucket so that I can start pulling off my myoglobin, my vancomycin. What would happen to your patient's blood volume or their volume status? Liter and a half an hour, right? Start getting really dry. What would happen to your filter? Start getting completely clogged up, right? If you try to take a liter and a half an hour of volume off the blood. So what can I do? How can I fix that problem? How can I still generate a liter and a half of volume going across this, but keep my patient even? Just giving the volume. So this is what we call substitution fluid. So if I say I want to generate, usually a liter and a half is the minimum. So usually you go two liters, three liters, four liters. If you're in the trauma center, you go six liters. If you really want to be aggressive, you put the patient on two pumps and go 13 liters. Um, we've done that many times. Um, so if I want to do, take, start taking, generating enough convective force, I need to, to give the patient some volume that I can then take right back off again. Right? So let's say I'm going to set a Q substitution flow of three liters. And unfortunately, by convention, it's in liters per hour. This is just a screw with you, right? So you got milliliters per minute, milliliters per hour, and then liters per hour. It's just a mess with your mind. Um, so I tell the machine what blood flow rate I want. My QV in milliliters per minute. I tell my machine what substitution flow, functionally, what convective force I'm going to create. And again, that's in liters per hour. And then I also can take off extra volume, right? I can say, I'm going to generate three liters of flow across my filter to get rid of the vancomycin and the myoglobin, but I also want to take off 100 cc's an hour. So I'm going to tell my machine, my PFR, right? I also want 100 cc's per hour. So that means every hour, I'll get 3.1 liters in the bucket. That's my <coughs> filtrate for, for hemofiltration. Make sense? Well, what happens to the efficiency of my hemofiltration if I dilute the patient's blood with three liters an hour right before it goes to the filter? Now I'm filtering the patient's blood at 200 cc's a minute, but also at three liters an hour. I'm decreasing the, fit, the efficiency of my filtration, right? Because I'm now filtering a bunch of crystalloid, right? Who wants to filter crystalloid? That's no fun. So how can I improve the efficiency of my filtration? I can give them the fluid post-filter. So I can say, you know what? I don't want to give three liters pre-filter. I want to give 1,500 pre, and I want to give 1,500 post. Well, why not give it all post? What happens to the blood in the filter if you give it all post? It becomes sludge, right, in the filter. And trust me, there's one thing you, you nothing you take out of here today is that it's all about your filter life and it's all about your access, and we'll come back to that. If you have a badly fun, functioning filter, you can throw as many liters through that filter an hour as you want. You're not clearing anything. So what we do is we call this pre-filter substitution fluid, and then we have post-filter substitution fluid. And by splitting them, it improves the efficiency of your hemofiltration as long as you're maintaining enough volume going across your filter that you're not hemoconcentrating too much. And then you're and then you're directly placing this back in the patient's blood after you've already taken off the volume. Does that make sense? And I will just tell you that the Gambrero pumps that we have require some post-filter fluid. It's a it's a function of the pump itself where the um, deaeration chamber is is a blood-air interface that drips the post, it comes off the post-filter fluid, it drips a little bit of whatever fluid you're using on that blood, so you don't get clotting. So you actually, you cannot run the Gambro pumps without some post-filter fluid. Now I will tell you, CC for CC, because your filter life is so important, pre-filter hemofiltration, pre-filter substitution fluid is actually more efficient. Because you run such a risk of hemoconcentrating and losing efficiency in your filter that actually, so typically by convention, our pumps are set up 70-30. Um, 
but it doesn't have to be. You can set it up any way you want. And I will tell you, well, I'll come back to this. So I can clear all sorts of stuff. I can clear drug um, protein-bound drugs with this. I can clear myoglobin. I can clear evil humors. I can clear cytokines. I can clear all sorts of stuff. Well, how the hell do I clear potassium? There are two concepts that are really important here, and one is much more important than the other. One is this concept that you'll hear about, and I mentioned it. It's called solute drag, right? Proteins and other molecules are all charged, so by what a process known as solute drag, if you take a negatively charged molecule off across the filter, by definition, a positively charged molecule has to go with it. So that's how you get a lot of clearance of your solutes, by something called solute drag, right? The potassiums will stick to the myoglobin or whatever it is. So solute drag is one thing, but what's much more important? Three liters of whatever fluid I choose. If I gave you three liters an hour of a fluid that had 10 of potassium, what would happen to your serum potassium? Right? So really, how you're managing their electrolytes is you are just functionally diluting out their blood with whatever fluid you pick and making their electrolytes look like whatever fluid you're choosing. Does that make sense? So, those of you who have this, <coughs> these are the fluids that we have available to us at, um, this is just at the medical center, obviously. Um, and you'll just see what the different solutions contain in them. And you can pick your fluid based on what you want their potassium to look like, or what you want their bicarb to look like, or what you want their, you know, calcium's a bad example, um, what you want their mag to look like. And you can just pick your solution based on that. Okay, so that's how hemofiltration manages solutes, and that's how hemofiltration manages um, drugs, and that's how hemofiltration manages a variety of protein-bound substances in your blood that you want to then clear. Does that make sense? Questions about that? I cannot we're all liars. all time. Okay, so now let's talk about hemo continuous renal replacement, continuous veno veno every time. Hemofiltration, uh, hemodialysis. <coughs> so hemodialysis, and this is again true for both. CDVHD and for intermittent versions of hemodialysis. The way these work is by setting up a countercurrent of dialysate that goes countercurrent to the blood. So if my blood's going across this way, my dialysate, my bag of dialysate is going to go across this way. And then dump in the bucket, which is how we get effluent. Ultrafiltrate plus dialysate is effluent, right? So it never actually mixes with the patient's blood. It runs countercurrent across the filter to the patient's blood. And for those of you who have heard of this before, it's the same example I'm going to use that I always use because I don't do math. Those of you who don't know me, it's actually true, I don't do math. So if I have, in this ridiculous example, a potassium of 10 in my blood, and I want to then lower my potassium to something human, and I use a zero potassium-containing solution as my dialysate. Oops, there's a four in there. Six, eight. I will always be maintaining a gradient across my filter that allows potassium to equilibrate by diffusion into my dialysate. Which are my new markers? Make sense? That's how dialysis works. And that's, again, true for intermittent hemodialysis or CVVHD. It's exactly how it works. You just set up a countercurrent, and you allow the fluid to equilibrate. So whatever dialysate fluid you choose, that's where nephrology comes up with a K-bath, right? How much bicarb, how much potassium. They make it sound very fancy by using words that we don't understand. But it's really all about what types of solute they have in their dialysate how long they're going to let it run across the membrane, so based on the flow rates. And that's how they determine, that's how they calculate out what they want the potassium to be at the end of the day. So what do I need to tell the machine to do? Again, I still need a QB. I now need a QD, a dialysate flow rate. And then if I choose to, 
I can also put in a PFR and take off 100 cc's an hour. So this will only clear solutes. Hemofiltration by its conductive force clears protein, middle and small molecules. Make sense? Crystal clear? Is there yeah. a difference between the filter and those things? Or is it still the same filter? So it's the same filter for, for CRT. There are different types of filters, though. Um, and the question you're asking is a really important one. So the different types of filters have different properties. Functionally, we use the same baseline filter for both of these. But there are different filters, and um, there's an HP, 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 HF1500, and then there's a um, AN69 filter, a PAN10 filter. Uh, one's, uh, I've always forgot the name of the substance that it's made of. They're made of two different artificial, artificial membranes on different substance. One, the um, PAN10 filters are much more absorptive. So there's some suggestion that if you want to do, for example, myoglobin clearance, using that type of filter, that it tends to get a lot of adsorption to the filter and then changing your filter frequently, like every four or six hours, you'll get better clearance because you'll get clearance where it goes in the bucket, but you'll also get clearance where it sticks to the filter. But functionally, the vast majority of filters function the same for conventional routine um, indications. There are also, you know, some of the original problems with CRT was, bio, was biocompatibility with the filter. So when they used to use like cellulose filters and animal um, that they were made out of animal matter, they used a lot of biocompatibility. Um, and so you see patients who get actually like, functionally allergic reactions to the filter. But functionally, it winds up being the same thing. Okay. Well, then we will go on to CBDHDF. And since I already told you it's basically this plus this, um, all you're going to do, all, is add a substitution fluid, and now all of a sudden, not only have I generated diffusive clearance from countercurrent flow of my dialysate, but conductive clearance and therefore protein middle sized molecule clearance into my bucket. So, in this, I need to set a QB, a blood flow rate, I need to set a dialysate flow rate, I need to set a substitution flow rate, and then if I want to add a little PFR on, I can do that as well. And that's all CUVHDF is. Very rarely do it. Um, the one main indication, so I will tell you a couple things. One is that solute clearance with um, CUVHD with dialysis is much more predictable. Uh, you can basically calculate out at the end of a six-hour period what their potassium is going to be. Um, because your solute manipulation with CUVH is so much more dependent on the patient's volume of distribution, Right, because we're adding that fluid back into their volume, that crystal, those buckets of crystalloid back into their blood volume. It's much less predictable. Um, it's much less reliable. You can't go and calculate it out because if a patient has a very large volume distribution because they're very hardly volume overloaded. All this crystalloid you're adding into their blood will equilibrate with the rest of their body. Right, so you want to calculate that out. Whereas here, it's a very predictable. You know, you can calculate per hour what their potassium is going to be. So if you want to just do solute clearance. You would use CBDHD. The, the times that we use CBDHDF, that I've used CBDHDF, um, is patients, for example, who have bad rhabdo and have very high potassium, where you really want to drive their potassium down as much as you possibly can, as, or as reliably as you possibly can. Okay. No questions about that at all? Hmm. I don't have a question. Go ahead. So how do you generate the conductive thing? Is that just. A function of the flow? It's a function of the flow so across the filter. Stuff, and that is that you just generate a lot more flow. Exactly. Yep, that's exactly it. So scuff, I'm only putting 100 cc's an hour in the bucket. Right. Ultra, uh, hemofiltration, I'm putting 3 liters in the bucket. And it literally is a function yeah. of the flow. Because that's actually, I, again, I should not only, not only should I tell you I'm a surgeon and I know nothing about nephrology, but I should also tell you I really barely passed physics in high school. So... The concept of like trying to teach convective forces to me, I'm like, I start sweating. I'm almost hot That being said, it, literally, you talk about convection, right? Your convective oven, right? The more the difference that you create by generating that flow is how is the how you increase that force, right? The faster the fan spins, that's how you generate convective force. I think that's how my convective oven works. I don't know why. 
don't cook. So, <laughs> but, it, but it makes my husband's um, biscuits nice and fluffy. I don't know. <laughs> and those of you don't know, I actually don't cook. I tried to store potatoes the other day. Ever again. Um, he learned his lesson, so he cook. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it literally is just a function of the convective force. Okay, a couple really, really important concepts. Just like any other filter, right, what is it going to require? Anticoagulation, right? Because if you, if you put any blood through a filter, it will clot the filter. And as we talked about, your filter, it's all about your filter, maintaining good, good, high-functioning, well-functioning filter. And I should mention there are, two, there are two terms that are unfortunately used interchangeably that really shouldn't be. There's filter clogging and there's filter clotting. Filter clogging is when we were talking about the adsorptive forces. If I have a filter that's very adsorptive and a lot of stuff is sticking to my filter, that is filter clogging, where my pores are now physically clogged with molecules. Filter clotting is about my blood clotting in the filter. And they actually look different on the machine with respect to which pressure starts screaming at you. But we do need to put some anticoagulation in. So what is the most common anticoagulant we all use? Heparin, right? Um, risks of using heparin. So HIT, um, if you're in the cardiac surgery unit, apparently everybody has HIT. Never see, it's like an epidemic over there. They all have HIT. Um, and my dear friends work over there, so I can see that. Um, but so heparin has its, its risks, right? HIT being the main one. And in cardiac surgery patients, obviously, there's a good reason why they're particularly paranoid about HIT. Those patients all get exposed to a large volume of heparin when they're on pump, et cetera. So, but heparin's the easiest one to use. What you always want to do is you always want to add your heparin. I'm just going to go back to my scuff circuit because that's the least mucked up one. You always want to add your anticoagulation as close to your access as possible so that you are anticoagulating the entire circuit. Um, as much as possible to prevent clotting, not clogging, clotting. Um, heparin being the most common, and what we'll do is we have per protocol, the nurses will then titrate the heparin to what we call the filter PTT and the patient PTT. So the idea is to anticoagulate the filter and the circuit, but not anticoagulate the patient. But they all get some heparin. So HIT is an absolute contraindication. The other um, patient populations that we tend to avoid using heparin in our patients are at significantly high bleeding risk. Um, primarily in my world, traumatic brain injury patients, right? We don't like to use heparin because they are, they are going to get some heparin in systemically. So what are your alternatives that you can use? <clears throat> so obviously if you're a HIT patient, our alternatives are Gatraban and Bivalrudin. Who knew, who knew uh, John Hess? Unfortunately, recently left the institution. Uh, he was director of our blood bank for years and years. Now we've got to Seattle. I shouldn't say he, who knew him but I called him one day and I said, hey, John, I got this guy who I really think has hit and um, I want to put him on, on our Gatraban. How much, how much do I use? This is before we had a written protocol. So being John, he came up with his little bow tie and, you know, and um, calculated out based on what the patient's cardiac output was, <laughs> based on what the patient's uh, baseline PTT was, and based on what the blood flow rate we were running. I was like, I was fascinated. Bill's math, and he was like, oh, you should start at 10. I was like, okay. So we now have a protocol, so you don't have to call Dr. Hess in Seattle. Uh, so you're going to calculate your argachaban, your bivalvertin dose, and basically do the same thing. You titrate to the patient's PTT or the filter PTT versus the patient's PTT. But let's say your patient's at significant bleeding risk, and you don't want to use an anticoagulant at all. So your other option is um, trisodium citrate. Is anybody familiar with trisodium citrate? I really wasn't until I started doing CRT. Um, its other main use is really for blood products to prevent clotting of blood products. Try sodium citrate, right? How does it prevent clotting? Very good. Chelates the calcium, right? So it just sucks the calcium out and doesn't allow for the blood to clot. So try sodium citrate, again, similar concept. You want to put it as close to the axis as possible. It will then chelate calcium. It will, it will decrease then clotting in the filter. And then what you always need to do after you've chelated all that calcium is give your patient calcium back. Okay, so when you run trisodium citrate, and again, I'll go to my, um, my simple circuit here, you run your trisodium here, and then you run your calcium here. And you always need a calcium drip, but it comes with, like actually when you order trisodium citrate, it, it orders the calcium drip for you. 
Now, with the shortage of calcium, we will notice there is a suspicious absence of trisodium citrate in our power plants because of exactly this problem. If we can't order the calcium, we cannot use the trisodium citrate. I have a stash of calcium in my office if anybody really needs to use trisodium citrate, but I only lend it for a lot of money. Um, so that being said, a couple things you need to be careful of when you're using trisodium citrate. Trisodium. So it's a very hypernatremic solution, so you have to be careful with your sodium. And the citrate is a very alkalemic solution, so you have to be very careful with their acid-base status because you can make them very alkalotic by using trisodium citrate. The other thing you have to be careful of, if you look at that sheet I gave you, the prismacates, those ones, the last four on there, the BGK4 slash 2.5, right? The, the, the number after the slash is calcium. So what happens if I'm giving trisodium citrate and a calcium-containing substitution fluid? I have now beat my head against a wall and completely eliminated all of the benefit of my trisodium by giving calcium at the same time. And I will tell you, you will all, well not you all, but my fellows, the surgical fellows will all at least once this year call me and say, I don't understand, I'm on 500 cc's an hour of trisodium citrate and the filter keeps spotting. And I will say to them, idiot, take the calcium out of your pre-filter solution. But, very important, if you're gonna use trisodium, very important to use a calcium-containing solution post-filter, right? Minimum, to decrease the amount of calcium drip you then need. Um, the other thing I will say about, uh, about the trisodium and the calcium is because you always need to run both. The filter knows, I'm sorry, the pump knows what anticoagulant you're running. It's very smart. So it knows that you're running anticoagulant, so it automatically subtracts out whatever volume you're using, so it doesn't make your patient real positive. Our old pumps didn't do that. The nurses had to constantly think, I'm running 250 cc's an hour of my anticoagulation. I need to subtract that off of my PFR. These pumps know about the trisodium. They know about the heparin. They don't know about the calcium, though. So your nurses still need to be smart enough to remember to take that off in PFR or else you'll start making your patient very positive. Because you run a high, it's, a, it's a pretty high volume. You wind up running about 200 cc's an hour of a calcium drip, which is part of the shortage. Sorry. Um, got it exactly. Um, so some, one other thing about anticoagulation. No, oh, completely escaped me. Questions about that? Okay, a couple of other things. So how do I know how much, what my QB should be, what my substitution flow should be. How do you know? How do you pick? <coughs> well, normally, if you're at the trauma center, you just pick a really high number and you go for it. It's usually what we do. If you're in the MACU or you're in someplace more reasonable um, than the trauma center, the um, then you would actually potentially do it based on some sort of science. So the concept here is about what we call filtration fraction. Filtration fraction is the ratio of your stuff in the bucket, your QUF, to your blood flow. And you want your filtration fraction for optimal efficiency of filtration to be about 15 to 20%. Um, and there are reasons why if you go too high or too low, it decreases the efficiency of your filtration. So if I tell you, and I'll just tell you this is just a number you have to know, an average daily dose of hemofiltration that would be equivalent to three times a week of hemodialysis, is about 25 cc's per kilo per hour of ultrafiltrate. All right, that's just a number that just exists. So if I take a week of CRT and a week of intermittent hemodialysis, I will get equivalent dose of urea clearance, because urea is always the molecule we talk about because it's freely clearable. So that's about 20, it's 25 cc's per kilo per hour. So if I have a 100 kilogram person and I want to put them just on a generic dose of dialysis, that would be equivalent to them going to their dialysis center three times a week, 2,500 liters per hour of ultrafiltrate, which if I'm keeping the negative, is 2,500 cc's an hour of substitution fluid, right? Make sense? Yeah? And then my filtration fraction is gonna be 15 to 20%, which is the ratio of my, Q, my substitution flow rate, which equals my QUF, if I'm not taking any volume off, right? And I want that to, to my blood flow rate. But remember, blood flow rate is in milliliters per minute, and your ultrafiltrate is in liters per hour, so you have to do the conversion. So I will tell you that there is a little chart that I did not bring for you guys 
that I already did the conversions for you. So functionally, you're going to run about 2,500 cc's an hour of substitution fluid or QUF if I'm taking no volume off. Then you want your blood flow to be about 200 cc's a minute. And I'll just tell you, I've already done that now. Feel free to, <laughs> to double check. Sorry, I don't know that. I had Excel do the math in all fairness. So that's how you know how to start somebody. So if I just want conventional generic dialysis. Now, why do we usually run more, bigger, better, right? If you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. Well, the reason being, most of our patients are not just requiring pure renal replacement therapy. Most of our patients are in septic shock. Most of our patients are, in fact, in acute renal failure in which the, the ability to tolerate hyperkalemia and acidosis is much, much less than your current rate. Patients with, who, have, who have chronic renal failure who are on dialysis, they live with potassiums of five point something all the time. Your acutely septic, hemodynamic, unstable patients aren't going to tolerate that, right? Patients with on the, on, on dial, chronic dialysis have bicarbs of 16. They do fine, right? Your acutely ill patients aren't going to tolerate that. So you usually want a larger dose of dialysis, which is why we tend to start higher. If you wanted then, and then, if you go to the concept of clearing proteins, if you want to start clearing things like myoglobin, and you really want to clear it, the higher your flow rates, the more convective force you generate, the more clearance you'll get. So if you really want to clear somebody's myoglobin, six liters an hour, and six liters an hour isn't good enough, go to 13. So we actually just had a patient upstairs, uh, I guess it was actually last year's class, who we, he had a myoglobin of greater than 200,000, big, strong, muscular kid. Myoglobin greater than 200,000, myoglobin greater than 200,000. Put, put a second catheter in and ran him at 13 liters because the pumps only go up to 6.5 liters and cleared him in about 24, 48 hours. As if 6 liters of flow is good? 12 liters is better. Um, so that's how you know how to start. Then people always ask, how do you stop? Right? How do you wean somebody off CRT? Well, <clears throat> so you could theoretically start doing some calculations. I'll tell you what I practically do because there's no data on this. So this is purely based on experience. When I start seeing the bucket stop looking like pee, when it stops looking like urine, that to me, and, and obviously the patient is in fact making some urine. When their urine looks like urine and my urine, my ultrafiltrate no longer looks like urine, usually that's a good indicator that they're doing their own solute clearance. The pump is no longer doing a ton of solute clearance. Completely confounded. Their bilirubin is 20. Everything's brown, doesn't matter, right? So that's kind of one way. You also, I will tell you that the pump doesn't do a great job of clearing creatinine. It's really hard to get somebody with normal creatinine with the pump. BUN, yes. Urea, freely clearable. You can get their potassium perfect, their, their BUN perfect, their myoglobin to zero. It's really hard to get their creatinine to 0.6. So when you start seeing their creatinine start falling, even though you're at the same level of the pump, usually that's an indicator that their kidneys are kicking back in. The most common way we typically do this is the pump goes down and the nurse goes, do you really want me to restart it? You go, hey. <laughs> Literally, that's like, like nine times out of ten, that's what happens, right? You're talking about, oh, should we consider trying this patient off the pump or not? And then the nurse comes to you and goes, oh, my pump just went down. And you go, ah, let's see what he does. Right? Now, obviously, all the conditions that, um, that require you to put the patient on the pump, you want those to all be gone, right? They shouldn't be acidotic. They shouldn't be hyperkalemic. They shouldn't be massively volume overloaded. They shouldn't be horribly hemodynamically unstable. They should be making, making urine. But that's basically how you wean it off. <clears throat> if you really want to actually wean it off, um, then, I, then you can just drop your substitution flow. Drop your QB at the same time, right? Because if you don't, you won't maintain your filtration fraction. And if their potassium stays okay, their bicarb stays okay, right? That means their kidneys are probably doing the work that you just took that you stopped doing. All right. Questions about that? Um, I, don't worry, I can talk about that better. Um, a couple other things, the access. The access, the access, the access. There is nothing that will torment you so much. Surgical people here, when you were the transplant resident or the vascular resident, right, most torturous rotation of your entire life was when you were like the access bitch. Like you were like the dialysis access, but right? Worst, like, worst three months of my life, right? You, were, you literally would go around just putting, like, putting catheters or putting quittins in people. And then you get a call back when it didn't work. You get a call back when it didn't work the third time. So the access is all so, so, so important. So because if you don't have good access and you're not getting good flow, you will clot, you will clog, you will, everything bad that possibly can happen will happen. The nurses will play with the catheters, 
But remember the cathars? Is everybody like held a quitin in their hands? Now the quitin is the brand name of what we have here. It's actually Marakar cather. There are a number of other brand names. Has everybody held one? They're really stiff and they have no memory to them. So if you bend it, it's bent and it will obstruct the lumen. So femoral access, you set the patient up, all of a sudden your catheter is now bent. Even if you lie the patient back down, you will still maintain that kink in your catheter. Subclavian access, patients are big and swollen. You try to get under their clavicle with a subclavian uh, quintin. Again, oftentimes we'll get a kink in it, won't get flow rates off of it. Um, for sick patients, uh, the, prefer, well, the, the traditional preferred access is always right femoral. It's the straightest shot. It goes right up into the IVC. You get the best flow off the um, inferior vena cava. You get the best flow off of it. That being said, if you actually want to do things like mobilize your patient, then femoral is not preferred. But if you're a really sick patient who's probably not getting out of bed that day, um, then right, and first of all, it's the safest as far as technical, technical problems with placement. Um, but obviously has long-term risks with respect to infection, just like any other central line. Your uh, second choice <clears throat> or for your not sick as crap patient would be a right IJ. Again, it's a nice straight shot into the um, SVC. At, um, at uh, the medical center, we have six different size catheters because, God forbid, us, the transplant surgeons, and the MICU could agree. Um, so we have uh, two different lumens. So there's an 11 and a half French and a 13 French. 13 French obviously being bigger. I don't even think we keep the 11 and a halfs over at the trauma center. I was thrilled you guys put a 13 French in that, in that liver pit, thank you. Um, but we had 11 and a half 13, versus 13. Again, little old lady, no reason not to use an 11 and a half. Big, young, healthy football player kid, please put a 13 in. And then there are three different lengths. There's a 24 that's designed for the groin. There's a 19 that's designed for the subclavian. And there's a 16 that's designed for the IJ. Um, keep in mind, our transplant guys hate, hate, hate subclavian lines, as you guys all probably know, in patients who are potential, uh, going to require long-term dialysis. So we do try to avoid the subclavian position. But if you have a patient who's really sick in your ICU, you're not going to leave a femoral on them. It's one of my patients who has a collar and a trach. There's nothing grosser in the entire world than when their trach secretions are, like, oozing down over their lines. <laughs> So I really hate IJs in this, and for long-term access in these patients, because they're all they're all just gooey and gross. Um, and then uh, infection rates typically, although are not by any means zero, are significantly lower than with other types of central lines. The reason being, you only access them for dialysis, so they're typically hooked up to a circuit continuously, and you're not constantly accessing the line to get drugs or draw blood or anything like that. So they actually do; they tend to last longer from an infection point of view, but not forever by any means. You know, there are central line that are sitting in sick patients. Um, what concepts did I miss? Can you touch on uh, lactate clearance? Because a lot of these folks that you know that weren't CVVH here, uh, you know, we're dealing with various problems: multi-organ failure, yep. lactate, um, lactic acid. Yeah. So lactic acid is a perfectly clearable molecule. So it's actually the good news and the bad news, right? So the good news is that if you have a patient who's on the pump, you can clear their lactate really, really well. The bad news is you can clear their lactate really, really well, and so you may not necessarily know when something bad's going on. That being said, it's, it's, I don't remember what the, specifically what the seeding coefficient of lactate is. It's, it's by no means one, um, but it's, it's, it's pretty freely clearable. So keep in mind, I mean, I guess going back to the more basic concept, is you're manipulating a lot of stuff with your patient. Or you can make your patient look on paper perfect, right? You can make their bicarb be whatever you want, their pH be whatever you want, their sodium, their potassium. But it doesn't change what still is underlying going on with the patient. I think lactate's a great example of that, right? So I can, maybe, I can make their lactate one, but they still may have dead gut, right? Um, and so I think it's one of the things that you have to be careful of. And when you apply any therapy, right, you're kind of a victim of your own success. Um, lactate's a good example of that. <clears throat> um, the pump will clear bilirubin, will clear ammonia, um, and it will clear drugs by the convective force. Oh, I should mention this. So how the hell, if I said all this time energy telling you that dialysis only does, osmo only does diffusion, how the hell does dialysis clear drugs? Why do you have to redose vancomycin after your generic little lady on dialysis gets her dialysis session? It's a mystery. Although I have a new mystery. Oh, good. So you got smart people. Why is blood on a non-contrast head CT white? It's not white anywhere else in the body? No. 
Nobody knows the answer to this question. I have to tell you, I asked Dr. Shannon and Dr. Mervis, they didn't know. Is that not the craziest thing? No, some medical student asked me that. I was like, oh, Anyway, I'll leave, you, I'll leave you with that. I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Is it iron that comes out? But iron, it's same iron in your blood and your belly. Fascinating question, isn't it? It's like, so you're all thinking about that. You're all going, no, I do. And you've asked, like, you'll ask, like, Shannon or some of the radiologists, but why is the window in? I didn't get the answer of what the radiologist was because blood is clotting. <laughs> anyway, somebody asked me a question much more important. Oh, so why, why, why? Let me clear stuff like proteins with hemodialysis. Because remember what you're doing with your intermittent hemodialysis is you're also setting a PFR. Right? Because you, you ask nephrology to take off three liters. So in that dialysis session, but just by dialing a PFR that's no longer our wussy little 100 an hour, but they're now taking off three liters over two hours, they've now been able to generate enough of a conductive force to actually clear proteins and drugs. So they actually are doing some, some convection, but it's only a function of how quickly they're taking, what they're dialing in for what, I don't know what they call the PFR, what I would call the dialysis equivalent of PFR. That is an age-old question. You will not have to ponder it. Yes. You also touch on uh, temperature regulation. So oh, thank you. Yeah. So there are a couple of things about the pump um, that are kind of uh, somewhat unique. Number one, I should just mention, at any one time on our Gambro pumps, they only have 150 cc's of blood outside their body. So if you lose a circuit, it's not like an ECMO circuit where they have um, 800 something cc's of blood outside their body. They only have 150 cc's of blood outside their body, so losing a circuit is not the end of the world. Um, the other thing, because they have a lot of blood, out, or a moderate amount of blood outside their body that is now running through at the atmosphere, um, patients who are on CRT, they typically don't get hypothermic, but they all get this nice, normal, consistent temperature where they won't spike fevers. Now we have blood warmers that you can warm the blood because if not, they will get somewhat hypothermic and stay hypothermic. But it absolutely um, will keep your patient from not from spiking a fever. And what we actually do for protocol patients who are on the pump is uh, do uh, cultures every three days. And if you see your patients spike to like 38.4 while on the pump, that is a serious, serious fever. But that being said, you can also take advantage of that. We actually have it written into our post-cardiac arrest hypothermia protocol. Um, we actually have CRT. You can actually cool a patient um, pretty effectively using CRT. Um, same thing, you can also help to warm a patient who is profoundly hypothermic by using a blood warmer and CRT. Obviously, ECMO is like the ultimate way to do that, right? Put them on bypass. But CRT can function the same thing. Actually, you can do it pretty quickly, too. But it's a very important one. They won't spike fevers. Um, and there's actually some discussion about the reason they might not spike fevers if they're on really high rates is not just purely mechanical, but that you may be clearing some of the cytokines of TNF and the IL-1 that do that promote fever. You're actually clearing some of that, and that would be part of the reason why they tend not to spike fevers. But typically when we're rounding, they'll tell me, oh, T-Max is 38.5, and I'll say, was that on the pump or off the pump? And the nurse will usually go, oh, no, he was off the pump. Okay, then fine. As opposed to if he's on the pump and they, and they have even a low-grade fever. That's very significant. Very important point. I think one, one more thing, when somebody is, depending on the frequency of the filters clogging, somebody can be off the pump more than they're on the pump. So looking at the numbers may not reflect actually a the ideal dose of CRT that you want to deliver. Yeah. So um, it's really getting the details. And really important point, especially if you're not the one who's actually managing, but so you're, you're looking at the numbers. Um, but I think communication with your nurse of how things are going. Because your nurse will come out and she'll go, I'm sorry, I've tried everything. My, my filter's gone down three times in the last six hours, right? Your patient has functionally gotten no therapy, right? So I think it's a really, really important point that just because you prescribed it, right, doesn't mean the patient got it. So having that communication with your nurse about how were they actually on the pump, and if they were on the pump, how is it running? Because if they come back and go, oh, I can only get my blood flow to 150 because my catheter sucks, you're not, and I only got my substitution flow to a liter, you're not getting effective filtration even though you prescribed it at three liters, four liters an hour. So really important, yeah, because it, you're very, very limited by your, and it's, all, it's almost always, again, your filter and your access. Um, and our nurses are pretty good about, about getting through a lot, but if, you're, if, you're, if, you, if your access is crappy, your access is crappy, just change it. And you can change it over wire. I'm not a big fan of changing catheters over wires empirically, 
certainly not for infection reasons, but there's nothing wrong with the catheter that's kinked. Just change that upper wire, assuming the patient doesn't have other reasons that need the catheter out or to change site. You have a question? Yeah, you might have, you might have uh, already said it, but you could run different substitution fluids pre and post. Yep. Oh, yeah, thank you. I didn't even talk, I didn't even talk about how do you choose your fluids. Um, so, um, so your fluids are typically chosen based on whatever your patient's electrolytes look like and what do you want to make them look like. I already said, I went through how you want to avoid calcium-containing substitution fluids pre-filter um, if you're using trisodium citrate. But how you choose your pre-filter versus your post-filter, it's really, again, remember I said solute clearance is very un, um, unreliable. It's, it's more unpredictable is really what I want to say. So how you choose your fluids, the, the way you initially choose them is usually kind of your best guess. But for example, I'll give you a classic example of a patient with a bad brain injury. They called me the other day. Uh, there's a patient who had a sodium of 119, and they wanted to, it was a brain injury patient, it was a chronic hypernatremia and a sodium 119. They want to raise the patient's sodium. They obviously don't want to do it too quickly. The patient was on the pump for a renal failure. What fluids, how do we do that? So a lot of it is trial and error. And in that particular situation, I was like, you better be checking Q1 hour sodiums on that patient. But what we actually did was picked a relatively... Um, isoosmolar fluid pre-filter and then ran a low-dose uh, um, um, hypertonic saline fluid post-filter. I don't know if I just said that right. So pick, I think we picked plasmalite pre-filter, which is 140 millipillions of sodium, and then a hypertonic solution post-filter. I'm sorry, we did half normal with one amplified carb pre-filter because I was really paranoid. Um, so half normal with one, with one amp of bicarb is going to give you about 126 milliequivalents of sodium. And then ran a 30 cc an hour post-filter hypertonic. The yeah. technical thing about uh -huh. the post-filter fluids, is there like a, a stopcock that you put it in? Is it, where, where is it? It goes, it actually goes, still goes into the, before, it still goes into the pre-blood pump. Okay. So it, it actually, the machine knows all about it. Uh, so the machine's taking, the machine's calculating it in. In fact, there are three... I'm sorry, Paul's not here with the pump, but there are actually three pumps, four pumps. There's a blood pump, a pre-filter, three pumps, a pre-filter and a post-filter, and if you're doing CVBH, there's a blood pump, a dialysate pump, and your, sorry, four, and then there's your, your PFR pump. Um, if you're doing CVBHDF, you can only run pre-filter fluid just because one of those pumps is needed for the dialysis, right? So you, don't, you don't get both pre and post or CVHDF. When you're first starting, what ratio of pre and post filter flow? Do you do like the 50 50? So, by convention, it's 70 30 is what our default is. Um, again, it depends on, like, for example, if I'm starting a patient on trisodium citrate, I'll, I'll oftentimes change it to 30 70 so that I'm giving them more calcium so I don't have to go so high on my calcium drip. Um, but by convention, 70 30 again, because the, most, the thing that we want to protect the most is the filter. And so you, you want to maximize your filter life. So the more pre-fluid substitution fluid you have, the more it maximizes your filter life because you're diluting out that blood. But it does decrease efficiency. So it's a trade-off. So 70-30 is kind of what we said a lot. That's kind of the industry standard. But you certainly can go 50-50 depending on what your electrolytes look like or if you want to make adjustments. Um, and you can go again. That is low as you can go. The, the lowest in the pre-filter I've ever done is 30-70. Um, but you can. I, you can actually do it running all post-filter. I just don't know what happens to filter life. All right. One more thing. Yeah. Two things. Uh, I think just the reassessment of your electrolytes and fluid sets a constant reassessment is, is necessary. In the same way you can't say somebody should get X amount of fluid for resuscitation. You know, it's how do they respond, how, and, and constantly... And, and the point about that is we do, we're, we do per protocol Q6 labs, doesn't mean you can't do them more frequently. So if you have a patient with a sodium of 119 or whatever it was, with a bad brain injury, you should, I'm absolutely checking Q1 hour sodiums, right? So just because it's defaulted to Q6 doesn't mean you can't be, do them more frequently and be much more vigilant about what you're doing. Because you can really, you can really mess somebody up if you pick a substitution fluid. Like if you pick a 0K substitution fluid on somebody who's not hypokalemic, Couple hours of that, couple hours of three or four liters an hour of a zero case containing solution, they're really hypokalemic. So I think that's really important point is constantly assessing. And that form that uh, Deb handed out is online. Just type in CRT in the intranet, and there's a line at the top that says you know, basically it's, it varies fluids. 
So um, I think you lied on one part. You are a cook. The ICU is your kitchen. I see your work adjusting the, the substitution oh, I floor. Like, I'm going to be birthed. I thought, I thought that Parker was going to debris me the other night. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna see, I'm going to need a little baby back. We're going to flop, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, so thank you, Dad. This is uh, really appreciated. My pleasure. People call me all the time. I'm really happy to answer those questions anytime, especially if nephrology students and you understand. And I will tell you, there, we have a new nephrologist whose name completely escapes me. The young woman. Chandra. Yes. Who has a lot of interest in hemofiltration. Unfortunately, when um, when uh, uh, Mara Dinitz uh, left, when, when her maternal, she had a lot of interest. Then we were kind of we went through a lag period where they weren't. It was it was hard to get them to, to get engaged. She's really wonderful, and she's a huge amount of experience. She came from, I think, Jefferson, where they do a ton of hemofiltration. But please feel free to get a question. I'm always available. So. Oh, very cool. That's awesome. Uh, Get in the shine for a couple more times. Uh, I see you're doing some stuff.